0: Welcome back to another episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. In this episode, we will be talking about the North American Revolution and a brief description of the French Revolution. Please enjoy. These help you better, and if not, then I can amend that a little bit if we need to also, uh, to find something that works the best for you. That's what we're trying to do. The ultimate goal of these is not to give you questions, but to help you. Right. so if the AMSCO it's more than if that one just giving you questions, then that's not what I want to do. So, um, let's look at these. Like I said, you can answer a lot of these with what we talk about going through because the difference in these, well, pretty much these are questions that I've put together that I've made as opposed to coming with like the AMSCO. Those of you have the AMSCO go with just the AMSCO. So, um, you can kind of answer these as we go through uh, units and through discussions as you're reading your AMSCOs, you know, these will come from several different sources. So, um, that's what we got here. That's why they don't get the that So, that is that with the questions. Now, yesterday, or actually two days ago I guess, we set up a lot of the causation and the context of what's going on with these revolutions. We know some of the major deals, some of the major issues are centered around the idea of mercantilism, are centered around the idea of absolutism and the nature of the state and state consolidation and movements and that kind of stuff, and the relationship between colonies and the mother country. Now, French Revolution is a little bit different because that's taking place in the mother country. But for today's purposes, we're going to talk about the North American Revolution today, which is the American Revolution. situation there and then we'll kind of set up the French Revolution so that we can kind of get into that tomorrow. It will be kind of tricky to cover the French Revolution in one day tomorrow. Um, That's something that like the Euro class spends like two full weeks on that. So we'll have to try to condense that down into a one-day discussion and still understand all the nature of it. That's kind of the difficulty of this class anyways, right? So but today we'll set up the North American Revolution which is a little bit easier because there's not really as much change with the North American Revolution, which sounds kind of weird in the fact that a brand new nation is created and a nation that becomes pretty influential moving forward and a big powerhouse, obviously, in the 20th century as we get to that, but there's really not a lot of change that takes place immediately here. You know, the name of the, it goes from the 13 colonies to the United States of America, eventually, but socially and really, realistically, practically, with not really a lot of chance to take place So we'll take a look at that. Now what we're gonna see, across all of these Atlantic revolutions, because we're gonna talk about the American Revolution, the French Revolution, there's a revolution in Haiti that takes place that's a big one there, there's a slave revolt. And then there's a huge series of revolutions that take place as we get to the early 1800s, all across Latin America, against the Spanish systems there, there's another round of revolutions in France. We'll talk about that later on. But they share certain things. And we'll talk about some of the things they share, but they also have different characteristics. And that's kind of what we'll talk about as we go through the individually. Now, some of the things that are under attack here. Obviously, we're bringing Enlightenment ideals into play here. These are the new liberal changing ideas. The fact of people being equal born equal. That's a different mentality than what feudalism used to say, where, you know, if you're born an aristocrat, you're born better, really. You're born with certain privileges. You're born more capable of doing things. That's kind of the old mentality of doing that here, okay? So, we're attacking this idea of absolutism, divine right of kings, replacing it with ideas like ruling with the consent of the governed from John Locke. all right, Attacking things like mercantilism and replacing it with things like free trade capitalist societies. All right? Attacking things like aristocratic privilege, which what, what's the biggest aristocratic privilege they had? And clergy, clerical privilege. What is that? There's really two things they could do that nobody else could do. Kind of be summed up in the big credo of the American colonists. What what were they going to war for? What was the phrase? No taxation. Yeah, no taxation without representation. Well, aristocratic privilege. Pretty much, they did not have to pay taxes, and they were the only ones represented in government. So they kind of had both of the things that the colonists wanted. Right? The colonists were even saying, "We'll pay taxes as long as you give us representation." Well, the clergy, oh, well, the aristocrats and the clergy both had the votes in government, and they didn't have to pay taxes, mainly because they had the say in government, so they made it illegal for them to have to pay taxes. So that's what the aristocratic privilege was: they were exempt from taxes, and they had say in the government. These other guys didn't. That's what these guys were fighting for. All right. And then, this is going to be the initiator of a lot of these revolutions, okay? We talked about what the bourgeoisie class was, right? Can everybody tell me what the bourgeoisie class was? Just give me a head nod if you know what that is. All right, at least the majority know. All right, the bourgeoisie are the middle class. These are the wealthy people. This has grown because of mercantilism we have an emerging merchant class who are wealthy, just like the aristocrats, but they don't have the titles to go with. (coughs) They're not lords, they're not nobles, they're not anything like that, but they're wealthy business owners, wealthy merchants. They're successful, all right? So, the different classes that are at play here are the bourgeoisie and the nobles. They kind of have a natural competitiveness to them, because they're competing with each other for business, these guys have the advantage, why? They control the government, they control the government and they don't, pay taxes. they don't pay taxes. These guys don't have a say in the government, and they have to pay all the taxes. So, these guys, that's what these guys are planning for. Now, when you look at this class, the bourgeoisie, they are not the most radical of revolutionaries. What I mean by that is they don't need a lot of change. They are successful as things are. So the only change they want to make is tax reform and let's make it where instead of 2% of the people have a say in the government, let's make it where 8% of the people have a say in the government. Small changes. Okay? Because the last thing that either one of these want is everybody having a say in the government. Because then they're both going to be grounded up. Because if they bring the peasants and the workers into the play here, that's not going to work out well. Those are the crazies, those are the radicals, those are the ones that are going to turn things upside down. We'll talk about that, especially when we get to the French Revolution. Because, yeah, we'll get to that later on. Alright? Now, here's the thing. The reason why the bourgeoisie are the initiators, actually, you tell me. Why are the bourgeoisie the initiators in all of these revolutions? Because in the American Revolution, it's a completely bourgeois um, revolt. In the French Revolution, there's three phases. The first one's initiated by the bourgeoisie. In every one of the Latin American revolutions, initiated by the bourgeoisie. Haitian Revolution, initiated by the slaves, completed by the bourgeoisie. So why are the bourgeoisie such an influential figure in all these revolutions? Tell me. Explain. Right. They have the education to submit an answer. When you look at peasant revolts, they're so unorganized. They have no means behind them, no wealth behind them, no power behind them. And they don't even know what they want. These bourgeoisie have ideas. When we're talking about changing the government, well, we want to change it to what Montesquieu says, to what John Locke says. They know they have a plan and a goal in mind, right? They are in step with the Enlightenment. Everybody else doesn't even know there's a different way. You know, these poor peasants, not calling them dumb, but they're ignorant. They don't even know that there's a different way until the bourgeoisie show them that. Alright, so, the bourgeoisie are the instigators, the initiators of most all of these things, okay? Now, some of the things that they share, and I put question marks behind liberty and equality, because liberty means different things at this time. For example, well, let's use the Declaration of Independence as an example, alright? Thomas Jefferson writes, all men are created equal. We know these things to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Well, you know, one of the big criticisms of that is Thomas Jefferson, a big plantation owner in Virginia that owns a lot of slaves. Are they created equal? To what extent are men created equal? Are we talking about all men? Are we talking about all men of a certain height? Are we talking about all men of a certain color? all men of a certain area that they're from, all men of a certain wealth. you know Who's created equal? Because when these founding fathers create their new government, is it all of a sudden that everybody gets to vote? It's all white males of a certain age that own a certain amount of property, about 8% of the population. So these questions are asked and so when you talk about liberty and equality, when France starts talking about that, because they have their version of the them, they call it Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. And Thomas Jefferson helps them write it. And they, they talk about these things. All men created equal, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you are in a French colony like Haiti, or Santa Dominguez is called then, then if you're working on a sugar plantation and you're a slave, well, yay. France just proclaimed that everybody's equal. Oh wait, slow down, slaves. We're not talking about you guys. We're talking about bourgeoisie in France that make a certain amount of money. So, this question kind of gets asked here. And then the other question is, you know, well, women. Women are created equal too, right? Women should have a right to vote. Well, that's not going to happen until 1900s. Now, slow down a little bit. That's kind of the mentality. So when we're talking about liberty, equality, and that kind of stuff, there's, there's different viewpoints on that. All right? And so when I say shared ideals, I kind of put question marks. In. But these all are enlightened ideals. You know, popular sovereignty. Well, what does that even mean? If you're Rousseau, then you're talking about the general will, majority rules. If you're talking about Montesquieu, then you're talking about that 10% because they're the only ones educated enough to really make good decisions in doing this. All right? If you're talking about Voltaire, well, the people are stupid, and they can't make decisions for themselves. We need to have one person who's in control that is trained, educated, elite enough to make those decisions, a.k.a. Napoleon or somebody like that. All right. So there's different viewpoints even on that as far as popular sovereignty goes, all right? So, but we'll we'll talk about the different dynamics and how that shows up here. Now, here's the issue in America, because we're talking about the American Revolution today, all right, so the issue in America is you have kind of this oppression that's pretty new in the 1760s and 1770s over the British colonies, all right? Up until that time, you have a situation in the American colonies where they've kind of been left alone. And what I mean by that, I say that kind of loosely, because these are under the issues of mercantilism. These are under the policies of mercantilism. But these 13 colonies are a little bit different than the Spanish colonies, or a little bit different than the French colonies, because these are, particularly the northern New England colonies, these are trading colonies, you know, these are shipping colonies. So these guys have benefited from the mercantile empire because these are shippers. So as things are getting shipped, it's going through these ports. So when you look at the founding fathers, you look at you know, George Washington, you look at Thomas Jefferson, you look at Finn Franklin, you look at these guys. These are wealthy bourgeoisie type people. You have a very strong Bourgeoisie class here. A very strong bourgeoisie presence in these 13 British colonies. And up until the mid 1700s, they've been able to kind of grow with a certain level of autonomy that they've gotten used to. Well, all of a sudden in the 1760s and 1770s, that changes. The British government tries to start cracking down. Why? Why? Right, there's this French and Indian War which is called the Seven Years War in Europe. And England won the war, but it cost them a lot of money because the whole strategy was we're gonna completely fund these Prussian forces against France and Austria so that we can go take the French colonies in the New World. That was the French and Indian War in the New World. All right, I'm not gonna get into the dynamics of that strategy. William Pitt claimed that the war for America was won on the plains of Germany, anyways. It costs England a lot of money. Well, under a mercantile empire, what's the answer when you've got to raise money? Where do you get it from? Taxes. Taxes, particularly who? From the colonies. That's the reason the colonies exist, right? So, Great Britain has been letting these 13 colonies do their own thing for a century at this time. They have to trade with England, but they're doing pretty well trading with England. These cotton producers are making a lot of money, maybe not as much as they could, but they're doing well. And these uh, New England shipping industries are doing decently, all right? They probably would like to be able to open their ports up to French and Spanish ships, but they can't, but that's not worth a revolution to them until this happens. Now, these colonists are forced to pay all of these new taxes, and this is what we just talked about. So they're forced to pay all these new taxes to fund the British war in America because the British claimed, well, we were fighting for your defense against the French. You should have to pay the the ticket for (coughs) this. And the colonists say, okay, well, if you're going to force us to pay, we want representation in Parliament. And the British say that's completely ridiculous. That's reserved for the aristocrats. And so the Americans get all upset about that. They do all these kind of things. They start not declaring independence yet, but pretty much refusing to pay these taxes. Throwing tea into harbors and doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, Gathering up all of the British soldiers here, tarring and feathering them and doing all this kind of stuff. And pretty much doing their own little protest, all right? One of them gets pretty bad. The British soldiers fire back at the crowd this Boston Massacre takes place, the Tea Party, you know, you know about all this kind of stuff. All right, so the colonies are in this state of protest. Eventually, the answer to the, for the British is crackdown even harder. So they declare their independence, they get their armies, all that kind of stuff. All right, so this, because they have read John Locke, These guys believe in the fact that government exists not to exploit and tax its people, but to protect the natural rights of its people, the rights of life, liberty, and as Thomas Jefferson amends it, the pursuit of happiness. Great Britain has taken those away. They're taking life away, they're taking liberty away, and they're taking people's ability to pursue their own happiness away. So, John Locke says, when a government does that, not only is it the right of people to get rid of that government, it's their responsibility to do that. And that's what he is exclaiming in the Declaration of Independence. Okay? So, they put all this in paper. Now the war for independence happens. Several battles, all this takes place. We're not going to get into that. Eventually, with the help of the French the American colonies win against the British. Why are the French helping? Because they're kind of angry about losing that war in Europe. Right, revenge is the biggest factor here. But also they would like to have another trading partner over here because they just lost other colonies, they would love nothing more than the British to lose their colonies, and they can start getting access to some of this continent over here. So the French provide a lot of assistance. I don't think the Americans would have been able to win without that French assistance. And uh, eventually they trap the British forces there and Great Britain surrenders at Yorktown. That's the big battle to finish it all off there. All right? So now, what do we set up? You know, if we're the bourgeoisie type people here, what type of government do we want? You know the answer to this. They try the Articles of Confederation doesn't work, so they want a stronger Constitution. Who are they reading to put this into play? Think to your Enlightenment figures. Who talked about a federal system of government with three branches and the check and balance? John Adams. Montesquieu, right? So, they go read Montesquieu, they copy his stuff down in Article One, Article II, and Article Three of our Constitution. They write their own preamble, so good job, guys. And these bourgeoisie figures have created their new government. All right? Now, the bourgeoisie love republics. You're going to see this. In the 1800s, whenever the bourgeoisie are successful in a revolution, they establish a republic. Why? Why? A republic is when, um, like, a class, I guess, represents all of the people below them. It's still, like, a piece of right. So, a republic is not a democracy. So, everybody's not voting. You have representatives that go make decisions for everybody else. Our constitution was written by the bourgeoisie class to support the bourgeoisie. We've amended it and changed it now to try to make it like that, but some would still argue that the Republic still helps one class. We're we'll not getting into that today. But that's what it was created for. And they make you know property restrictions and all this kind of stuff to make it where the bourgeoisie are still in control. So all they have really done is try to make it like it was before the French and Indian War where the bourgeoisie could do what they wanted to do. Now it's a little bit better for them because they can expand their trade to other countries so they can make more money. But politically speaking, there's not really a lot of change. We're changing the name from the 13 colonies, British colonies, to the United States of America. But the same people are in charge, all right? The same influential people are in charge. And then there's not a lot of social change because there's not the social dynamics that exist in a place like France. There is no aristocratic class they have to take on. They got rid of those guys, those were all in England. There is no clergy class, those guys are all in Europe. So all they really need to do is make sure the peasants don't take over. That's easy, create a republic. Done. So that's what we have here. So the results are, there's not really a lot of change. When you think about the revolution in the Atlantic, that has the least amount of change is probably the American Revolution. Again, that sounds kind of weird because we think of it as a big momentous occasion, which it is in our history. We have our own country and those kind of things. But when you look at the dynamics, there's not really a lot of change. The same founding fathers that were influential before are influential now. All right? New country, that is a political change, but there is no social change whatsoever. Or very little. All right. Political authority still in the hands of those elites, and we're going to see we're going to see the uh, this dynamic change. All right. Now, what I mean for that is, in the Americas, they handle it this way. In France, they're going to handle it a different way. Pretty much, you don't have to be. Because all it was before this was you had to have an aristocratic title. Well, they changed that to where it's just property. So it's the bourgeoisie. All right? And then what we're going to see here is really the first domino has fallen. Now, what I mean by that is I guess the biggest impact of the American Revolution is this is the first success of the Enlightenment movement opening the door for all of the other revolutions that are going to take place. The French Revolution may not have been possible without the success of the American Revolution because the French now say, well, hey, these Enlightenment ideas are working in the United States. Let's try them here. And so they go through their own revolution. Same is true in a lot of these other bourgeois revolutions across Latin America. So this opens the door for decades and decades of revolutions against mercantilism, absolutism, all the stuff we talked about in the 1700s. All right, so the Enlightenment is now put into action here. All right, so, French Revolution. All I want to do today is set this up and then we'll be done. All right, I don't want to get too much into French Revolution. But I do want to set up the situation that's going on in France and mix the the comparisons with North America. So, France is under a different situation than what we see in North America. These two people are not really involved in the colonies of North America. These are guys who would have been in England. Actually, these guys. England is not they have a strong class there. These guys are the ones that they were both against in England, all right? Now, in France, there's a different dynamic. They call it the Estates. it's organizing the estates. Estate state one in France is the clergy, it may be as high as 2% of the population. The nobility probably is more like 2%. Um, there's a lot more French nobles than there are British. There's probably 1% in the British society. But there's a lot more French nobles than British here. But everybody else are pretty much in the same thing, including the bourgeoisie. Now, in France, these two guys make up a small percentage of the population, but they own everything pretty much. And they're in government, and their privileges is they don't have to pay taxes. All right, so we know that about these classes already. Now, the struggle of French society. And I guess before we get to that, Louis XVI is king here. He's gonna kinda take a lot of the brunt as far as people blame him for everything, but some of this, Situation is not his fault. Um, France is under an absolutist style of government that really starts with Louis XIV that cannot sustain itself, especially in 1700s because Louis the Fourteenth establishes an absolutist model that costs a lot of money, paying for everything. You know, when everything goes, you know, his big thing was "I am the state." Well, that means it's. He has to spend a lot of money to maintain the state. And you know he builds his palace at Versailles and all these kind of things that cost a ton of money. Well, that worked out well for him because they had the colonial empire to support him. Whenever he needed money, his financial minister, uh, Jean-Baptiste Colbert was his name, could find the money wherever he needed to. That's not the case in the 1700s. Remember, they had just lost most of their colonial possessions to the British in the French and Indian War. So, things are getting bad. They're pretty much at the level of bankruptcy. I'm not even really gonna say on the brink of bankruptcy. They're pretty much there, all right? And not a single person in France can sustain his lifestyle, including the king. The king is in debt. The urban peasants or the urban workers are in debt. They can't afford to pay even for a loaf of bread The peasants are not making really a lot of food because of uh, famines and droughts and those kind of things. The only people that can really afford their lives, because even the aristocrats really are not super wealthy. Some of them are, but not all of them. But the only people that can afford their lives are the bourgeoisie. But they're not happy. Why? They want more political power? They They don't want to... they want everybody to pay the same taxes they're paying, but they're not that bad off because they're trading and doing well there. All right. So some of the problems here, if you look at a typical budget of the urban commoner in Paris, you're looking at this. You're paying 80 percent just for bread, for food, for stuff like that. You can't really feed your family much, and you have your rent that you're paying for your shop or your house, or if you're a peasant, to your uh, Noble to your landlord, tithe to the church, taxes thirty-five percent, clothing twenty. This is if you add it all up, one hundred seventy percent of what you make. You can't. It's impossible to spend that, right? You can't spend more than one hundred percent. And so, how do they food? How do they afford this? You cut food out, you starve. You cut your rent out, throw it on the streets. You cut your tithe out, you're not going to heaven. You cut your taxes out, throw it in prison. You cut your clothes out never ends up well for anybody, and so you can't afford any of these, right? Well, so they're thinking, where's all of this money going, especially this? We're paying all these taxes, and our situation's getting worse and worse and worse, so where's this going? So they hire this guy, the king actually hires this guy, which is not very smart, his name is Jacques Necker. you don't have to remember his name, but he... Makes the king's budget public, which we're used to. We can go look up our government spending. That's all stuff that's. Come. In absolutism, that's not the case. It's all you don't. It's on a need to know basis. You don't need to know. All right. Well, he makes it public, and everybody says, "This is what we're spending our money on." And look, the king can't even afford this. All right. Twenty-five percent of the national budget is going to the king's house, just maintaining Versailles. All the servants and stuff are there, and it's a huge expense. The king's coronation costs 10% of the entire budget? You kidding me right now? And I'm starving over here as an urban peasant? This is not a good situation. So people go up in arms over this, outraged by this. And France is at the border of chaos. And they come up with this list of grievances called the de des Dolanches. And um, they start publishing this all across France. Alright? So that's kind of the issues that we're seeing here. That's what we're off really well for today. Actually. We won't get into the actual revolution today. The situation's not good, though. We will pick up with the revolution tomorrow. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. In the next episode, we will be talking more about the French Revolution. Thank you.